This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today's show is part two of my interview with racial justice educator Debbie Irving, author of the book Waking Up White. Last week, she explained to me what she meant by that title, how, as an adult, she started learning about how her white skin had put her life on a trajectory far different and far easier than the lives of her black friends and colleagues. She began to notice the ways in which all her life she'd been skeptical of and kind of blind to the experiences of people of color, and the ways she'd unconsciously been causing them injury through her dismissive comments and behavior. Like when a black friend had told her how uncomfortable she felt in an otherwise all-white meeting, and Debbie had assumed she was overreacting and seeing racism when there wasn't any. She ended by saying how learning to talk about race with white and black people and address really uncomfortable subjects has helped her feel closer and more real with all the people in her life. I invite you to go check out part one of this interview on our website if you haven't heard it. Here's part two. In your book, you talk about, um, you said, you know, before I really invested in, you know, learning about whiteness, my own white experience, there were markings that would have screamed caution, that would have screamed caution to any person of color about really getting close to me. And I was so intrigued by that. What do you mean by the markings that screamed caution? Oh, I think this will surprise um, people to hear this, but it was, it's things like, uh, well, the the way I was taught to start a polite conversation was to say, where are you from? You know, what do you do? They were all these, these conversation starters that are actually so incredibly offensive to many, many people of color um, or people who aren't born here. And the idea is the way it can be. So the intention, my intention is to be friendly, get a conversation going. The impact is, which I had to have pointed out to me by another white person who was further along in her journey than I was, um, the impact on the person who's hearing that is, do you really have to put me in a little box before you can relate to me? You need to know, you need to know, am I, am I, am I black? Am I Asian? Am I, am I mixed race? You, you, you actually need to know that before we can have a conversation or you need to know where I can work. Are you trying to figure out like how worthy I am or how valuable I am or how educated I am? Or you need to know what my credentials are, what my pedigree is. Right. And so this is such a perfect example of like, you didn't know that this is what you were communicating. You, you were, you were being your regular, polite, interested, you even thought warm self. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine how many times I've done this. Yes. Without knowing it. Were there any other things that you learned that you were doing that were screaming caution without you realizing it? Oh, probably. Uh, well, you said, you know, when you picked up this book thinking, oh, I know all this. <laughs> I went, I went, you know, um, for people who've read the book, it was this whole course, this graduate school course that really changed my life. And when I talked about the big aha moment with the GI Bill, that was part of the course. So I marched into that course thinking I knew everything. thank you for joining me in that embarrassing confession Debbie yes yes and I think I think that one of the things that's a major red flag is when white people start talking about how terrible all the other white people are and how much they know and how liberal they are that can be a real red flag that oh boy this person 
thinks that, you know, they're not, they're not willing to work on themselves or not willing to look inside. They really want to differentiate themselves. You know, I think it's yet another way that we're sort of trying to prove our goodness. Yes. Which is tiresome. <laughs> or I, another one, which I haven't thought about, but um, I think would certainly be true, would be asking a question that would show um, a level of ignorance. So, oh, have you ever, why don't you live in Winchester? Have you thought of living in Winchester? Which if, if someone, if I had asked that of somebody back in, you know, even I think the 70s or 80s, I think they would have looked at me with two heads like, are you kidding? Do you actually, you don't know that I can't live there? So there are a lot of questions like that that would just display a level of ignorance. Right. And I don't I wanna... mean ignorance in a bad, in, in a mean way. I mean like act, not knowing, not know, not knowing what you don't know. Genuinely, right? It's a true blind spot. It's a true blind spot. The better word for it. So when you talk about, you know, white people disparaging other white people and saying how bad they are and that that's a red flag, you know, I can certainly recognize that. I've certainly done that. Um, are there other ways to talk about, you know, how I notice racism in other whites without it being a red flag? And yes, I think that it's... I. I do that once I have trust, but if that's your, if that's the only way a white person knows how to relate cross-racially, that's the red flag. If there isn't any acknowledgement of one's own racialization, so that if you, if a white person can't contribute anything to the, about their own awareness of their white experience, that's the red flag. I see that I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about other people. Is that, is that what you're yes. saying? Yes. I mean, I find that nothing... Um, goes towards equality in a cross-racial relationship than when everybody in the room can talk about their racial experience. If I can't talk about how my life is, the racial aspects of my life, all I'm doing is sitting around and letting other people tell their stories and listen and learn and further exhaust them. I'm not being an equal participant, and that's a red flag. That's really helpful. I think that for... For me, certainly, even thinking about myself as having a race, you know, is something that I had to learn. And that is enough. That right there is enough to get the conversation started. That's all. That's all you need to say. As opposed to tell me about your terrible day. Tell me about your terrible life. I think it's terrible what other white people do to you. Then that's a, you're asking someone to educate you. You are showing that you really haven't done a lot of internal work about understanding your own racialization. Yeah. You know how you were saying um, white people, uh, you know, we're trained to when we meet a new person say, you know, oh, what do you do? It's the first question. What do you do? Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to ask that question for all the reasons you just said, what are the new questions you ask now when you meet a new person? <laughs> well, um, because I spend a lot of my time at conferences, I'll say, are you, you know, how's your day going? Um, did you go to, did you, what workshops did you go to this morning? Um, find something about the experience that's, that's common, um, as opposed, just what I would say is try to stay away from pinning a person down on their social location, on their class, um, you know, on their sort of identity, class, yeah. ethnicity, identity. Yeah. It comes across in a really, uh, yucky way. That makes sense to me. I'd like to ask you now about how what you've learned about racial justice has affected you as a parent. 
Um, <sighs> and especially because one of the things you write about was about how in your childhood there was this idea of really sheltering the children from the news and fostering a sense of optimism and kind of sheltering them from really knowing about any bad thing. And you write a little bit about how that's kind of white privilege because, of course, black mothers are telling their black sons, like, this is how you have to act with the police, you know, keep your hands out of your pockets, et cetera, et cetera. There's all this stuff that white mothers don't have to tell their white sons. But is it more than that? Like, how do you talk to your children about race, maybe when they were really young especially? Yeah, well, if I could do it all over again, I would. On the racial front, I would, I would just, I would have more answers. I had no answers. I remember when my oldest daughter um, was in the third grade, and she, and she came up to me. I was at the kitchen sink. I will never forget it. And she, and she just kind of stayed really close to me for a little while, um, kind of clinging to the sink with her fingers. And then she said, "Mom, why is it that the black kids are in a lower reading group?" And I said, "I, I don't know." And I said, but it bothers me. So, and that was a pretty good answer, given that I didn't know. I didn't make up some, you know, cockamamie reason. But um, I also didn't work hard enough at that moment. It was years later. I mean, it was probably five or six years later that I actually woke up. Why didn't I investigate more then? Um, And if your daughter asked you that now, how would you answer it now? I would say it could be a lot of reasons. Um, It could be that the teacher doesn't expect as much. Um, of those kids, it could be because sometimes people who don't feel comfortable in the classroom are, it's much harder to learn. Um, it might be, think of who's in the books. What do you like about the books? I might point out the characters of the book. And I would certainly, if a, if a, uh, she had come to me at that point and I knew what I know now, this is hard to imagine because I, I wouldn't have let it get to that point. She would, <laughs> um, I think I would have made, I would have tried to work with people in the school to make sure that there were books that reflected the kids in the school. I mean, I would, I, I would have wanted to have a committee really addressing this issue at the school. Um, the other thing I would do, so as a white parent, I thought I was, I was just being the best mom in the world by volunteering to be a room parent every year. And I judged the fact that most of the parents who were volunteering at the school, showing up for the fundraisers and on the various little committees in the PTA were white parents. I made an assumption that the reason uh, black and brown parents weren't doing that so much was that they had two or three jobs, they, or they didn't, you know, they just were exhausted or they didn't care that much. In fact, there's a huge, um, This stress I talked about, these microaggressions, it can be so uncomfortable for parents of color to come into these white spaces. I mean, after being in a white space all day long in your job, to get into a white space, and often the teachers and administrators, and I saw this happen, are really harsh. They they can treat the black and brown parents differently. And if there are only a couple black and brown parents and a sea of white parents, then it's that feeling of isolation and, um, you know, do, and we all, here's another window in, we all know what it's like to not feel like you're part of the in group. And so if you've got these white, especially mothers who are bonding all day long on these committees, um, and then there's an event at school that night or on a weekend and these parents show up who really don't know anybody, it's just, it's just this vicious cycle. So what I hear you saying is that often, um, 
black and brown parents aren't volunteering to be more involved in the school because they're sort of they have white space fatigue. <laughs> they're exhausted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, they're exhausted from being in a white space at work and then having to come into the school where it's also kind of run by white people. Is that what you mean by white spaces, that they're run by white people? And how could we change these public spaces to have them be less less of a white space? Hmm. Well, inter- yes, that's what I mean. And by the way, that isn't the only reason. There are all kinds of reasons people don't come to school. But that was the one that really surprised me the most. Um, I think, I used to think in terms of diversity, I used to think, well, there are one or two black families here, so we're good. These days, I think in terms of 33%, and that's a number that just, I I started to realize, you know, that's what we're really talking about. Once you get to about a third of the room, I think things start to shift. And so, um, in terms of schools and, and if you're in a school where there is a diverse student population and um, a parent population that reflects that student population isn't showing up, then I think it's time to uh, do serious outreach. I mean, maybe you go hold uh, your PTO meetings in different parts of town. Maybe you actually pick up the phone and and have buddy a buddy system phone call to get people there. But to just sort of expect to have one email blast and have people show up equally, I don't think is realistic. Um, And there's also, here's another very interesting aspect to schools right now, and that's that 85% of the teaching force in America is white. And our our population of students is getting closer to uh, 50-50. 50 white, 50 a combination of of people who uh, would not identify as white. And everybody in education, or many people in education, understand and acknowledge that it would be great to diversify the teaching force so that it reflects the student body more. And yet, teaching salaries are so low, and the education to get a teaching degree is so expensive that the only people who can really afford to become teachers are people whose parents can... Um, either help them avoid having loans or can uh, be their safety net if they default on their loan. And that goes back to the whole wealth divide, the wealth gap. We're, we're, getting, we're seeing um, it's very hard to attract and retain, retain teachers, not even teachers of color, students of color who are um, pursuing the teaching field. So that's another example of systemic vicious cycle, self-perpetuating racism. And that, and that keeps it being a white space. Exactly. Um, are there other levels you think that shape it as well? Like you said, there are many other things. Are there things like the way that the meetings are run that feel very white? Or are there ways <laughs> that um, the kind of communication styles that people have? that Like are there all these other cultural things also that make it uncomfortable? Yes, 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 and yes. All of that. Yeah, there really are cultural norms that because we have grown up and uh, or grown up, we've created and maintained a segregated, a largely segregated society and white has been the dominant society. The cultural norms around business meetings um, are very are different. And so an Afro- in what way? Like, yeah. Oh, OK. So um, white cultural norms are the agenda is God. And, you know, if we say we're going to move on to the treasurer's report at 815, by God, we're moving on to the treasurer's report at 815, no matter what's come up in the room. 
and we want to get to everything on the agenda. And I am so, so formerly guilty of this. I completely know this. Um, you know, time, efficiency, productivity, and the deeper conversation gets sidelined often in these spaces. Um, and then the other you know, if you're not supposed to create conflict, which is a, I would say, uh, a norm in the dominant culture, creating conflict is seen as being sort of a troublemaker. Then if you are a person, a, a parent of color, and you want to bring forward an issue that's really hurting your child or something you think you could contribute to the school that would be expansive for everybody, um, you know, bringing that up in a space you already feel intimidated in you know, the last thing you're going to want to bring up is something that's going to further label you or marginalize you as someone who doesn't fit in. It's There's another vicious cycle we've got going. So, yeah, there's that. Makes so much sense. I want to read, you have this uh, list in your book of, of kind of white values like this that mm -hmm. I found really, really powerful. Conflict avoidance, valuing formal education over life experience. And these were the sort of values of the dominant white culture. Mm -hmm. The right to comfort, a sense of entitlement, sense of urgency, there you are about that agenda, competitiveness, emotional restraint. Boy, I can resonate with that. Today you don't family. want to fall to pieces and cry, whatever you do. God forbid. Judgmentalism, either or thinking, belief that there's one right way, defensiveness and being status oriented. Mm -hmm. And they. it feels like, you know, as I read that list, I have to say part of what I felt was, these things are so deep. I felt a little bit of a sense of discouragement, like, wow, this is hard to, these are things that are going to be hard to overcome. They're so deeply ingrained in me, along with all the overt racist images of superiority and mm -hmm. so on. There's this whole other level, which is just like how I am comfortable being in the world. And I'm curious to ask you, do you feel like, as you have immersed yourself more and more in racial justice work, that your ability to value other ways of being and other ways of relating um, that your comfort with that has grown? For sure. And um, I think one thing that's important to say about that list is those were qualities that I noticed in myself that I understood had been nurtured and promoted and valued in my dominant white culture family. Um, and I, And as I started to share them with people, I realized how much they resonated. And so there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm white and that those weren't the values in my family. And, and I don't want to take away from that. That's those are not everybody's. Those are mine. But it does seem that an awful lot of people relate to them. And think about how harmful, how counterproductive any one of those are in terms of creating a, an inclusive community where people feel free to say what's on their mind. You know, you don't have a lot of time. That's not going to happen. Emotional restraint. That's not going to happen. If you go down the list and look at it that way, um, the reason I put that list out there was because these are qualities that are not helpful to um, creating inclusive environments. And a lot of time, workspaces and schools, uh, communities will try to diversify and then they can't figure out why they have a low retention rate or why people aren't actually uh, aren't thriving. And so my, the point of putting that list together is, look at these are the behaviors that are just really kind of holding us in place. So what you're saying is these are so ingrained. And I recognize, my God, these are so ingrained in me. What am I going to do? And so I knew from teaching that it's much more, it's very helpful. Instead of telling someone what not to do, it can be more helpful to tell them what to do. So I came up with a list of alternatives for myself 
to counter each one of those traits. Well, let me let me read them then, because I yeah. think that is really, really ho- helpful and hopeful. So things like I'm comfortable giving and getting honest feedback. I'm I mostly value intuition or emotions and senses. These are sort of the opposite in some ways. I tolerate or embrace discomfort as a way to grow. I like to slow down and see how conversations and initiatives unfold. That's so the opposite of the white business meeting. It's almost comical. (laughs) I've gotten really good at that. I've gotten very good at that. I'm able to be vulnerable and cooperative. I tend to be curious about other people's perspectives. That's the opposite to being judgmental. Um, Anyway, it goes on. But uh, yes, so those are really, these are really helpful and wonderful kind of things to to meditate on. A lot of times when um, I talk about this or people will say, but being efficient is good. Well, yes, I'm not saying let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not a matter of either or. It's more of having uh, multiple ways of being in the world and knowing when which is called for. And, uh, you know, when somebody is pouring their heart out to me, you would I would know to do this with a child. Or um, my, you know, if my husband really has a grievance, he wants to air about our marriage. I, of course, would create time for them. But in these public spaces, in a school meeting or in an office meeting, somehow the rules would change, and I would think that we had to get through get through something. And so it's just expanding um, where and when we show up with what parts of ourselves. That makes sense to me. So that brings me to another kind of public space, which is um, family dinner tables and uh, racist comments. So Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of white people may have the experience of being in a group of people where someone may may make a racist comment or make a racist joke and laugh. And there's this moment of intense discomfort around, do I speak up? And if so, how do I do it effectively? What can I say that isn't just going to come off as sounding really self-righteous and shaming, but that helps, helps me feel like I've had some integrity here to say, you know, that's really not funny. That kind of attitude actually supports, you know, vi- violence, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to hear if you have advice about how to speak up in a, when there's racist comments in an all-white context in an effective way. I do think there's an effective way, and it's exactly the opposite of what I would have once done, which is try to, um, you know, tell people a thing or two about a thing or two. In fact, here's the best advice I have. Start asking questions. So what we're talking about is conflicting belief systems, because anyone who's going to make a racist comment is probably really coming from a place of believing that there's uh, an inferior type of human being. Um, either by biology, uh, psychological makeup, whatever. They will, they will divide human beings, and now they think this is a lesser human being, someone who's not as valuable. They start making fun of them, making jokes, disparaging remarks. We've all been there. And I find the most effective thing is to start, ask questions that get at, start asking questions that get at the belief system. Like what? Um, with a ref- so, um, and this is where I do a lot of role-playing in workshops. So... When I hear you say that, it makes me think, um, it makes me curious about what you think about, um, you know, people who live in that part of town or black people or, or when you think of immigrants, what, what's the picture that comes into your mind and start asking questions. And instead of putting people on the fence of 
which is judgment, go to that opposite, which is curiosity, and get sincerely curious about where they're coming from. Where did they learn that belief? What do they believe? Where did they learn it? And, and sometimes once the conversation gets softened a little bit, you can feel the energy in the room change a little bit. You know, if you're talking about immigration, for example, you know, who do you picture when you, when you think of an immigrant, who do you picture? They'll describe someone. They're really hoping that they're going to get your goat often too. And you just stick with it in an unflappable way. And you say, but so what does that mean? What would you think of someone who moved here from Germany? You know, tomorrow, is that a different? And, and as you get people talking about and exploring their belief systems through questions, and I will tell you, this does take practice, uh, which is why role-playing is so helpful. Often I will, I, will, I will watch a person say something about their own belief system that they realize makes no sense. And that's when a person really starts to change, is when they hear themselves say something that makes no sense. And, and how do you make sure that that isn't ultimately humiliating for them? Because that feels like that would backfire. I think uh, for me, Peggy McIntosh actually was, uh, as, I, as you know from my website, one of my mentors. And one of the things that she always said to me is just speak about yourself. Just talk about yourself. So if I were to say, you know, because for me, when I realized I was thinking every time I heard the word immigrant, this image of a Mexican was popping up. And I'm not quite sure where that came from, but I started thinking, so well, what if it was, then how do I feel about someone from Germany? Or how do I feel about someone from, you know, someone who's upper class from Venezuela? Or how do I feel about a Canadian? You know, I started to really challenge my understanding of that term and what am I really saying? So I think when people give of themselves and admit to their own, not admit isn't even the right word, share your own process, it, it in, invites people to get in their process. And I'm making it sound really easy and neat and tidy, and it's not. And I think this goes back to that idea of being willing to just, um, you know, let it get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And the people who are in your life, if they're family, they'll stick with the conversation in, in ways that will surprise you. And I'm not just talking from personal experience, but all of the white people who I have worked with over these last few years, um, who will say, I cannot believe it. Look at the article my mother just sent me. You know, this is, she's now sending me stuff to educate me. Isn't that, and isn't I was, that so hopeful? That's really yes. thrilling. So Debbie Irving, thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, it's been an ongoing process of learning more from you. Just what I think I've figured it out. I keep learning more. Thank you for helping me know that that's what the whole process is. And um, in some ways, I can feel that jumpiness we described, like that anxiety about interracial relationships. I feel it lessening in the context of talking to you because I feel like um, so much of this is really understandable human relationship stuff about uh, feeling about stuff that I actually do feel competent to navigate. I, I don't know. There's something about talking to you that makes me feel this is more doable. And that feels very encouraging. We do. We all have these skills and we use them a lot. We just somehow get panicky and forget to use them or they don't ex apply in exactly the same way. So there is some learning for sure. Thank you so much. I want to talk about resources, the ones that we've mentioned in the course of these interviews. Uh, one is the PBS special, Race, the Power of Illusion. 
You can get the transcripts for free online. Uh, the video itself you actually have to order. The next one was the Diane Sawyer special called True Colors, which was in two parts. And then lastly, I want to recommend Waking Up White by Debbie Irving and also uh, your website, DebbieIrving.com. And that's Debbie with a Y, Irving with an I, DebbieIrving.com. There's a blog and all, all kinds of resources there. Uh, Debbie, thank you again so much for being my guest. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you would like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download the show onto your smartphone for your morning commute. You can write us a comment. We would really love to hear from you. And if you prefer, you can get the show through Facebook or through iTunes. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.